Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. God, in our darkest night, in humanity's darkest night, you are the day spring. You busted through our darkness and brought light. You brought us life. This is not something we could bring in of ourselves, within ourselves, God, we are darkness. We confess that we love sin in and of ourselves, but God, you pursued us and came like sinful flesh, but not sinful and was the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we could be redeemed and brought back into relationship with you. God, we confess that we are extraordinarily weak. But God, you are extraordinarily strong and loving. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending Jesus as a baby to save us, God. Bless the preaching of your word. May it honor and glorify you. May our people be edified and shaped and molded by this extraordinary truth that you have come to save us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's a privilege to be able to be here with you and and preach through this passage in particular. We're going to be in Matthew 1 like Nathan read. As you're turning there, something really extraordinary happened to me last week. Can I tell you about it? I got the microphone, so I guess I'm going to go ahead and tell you about that. Um, it was amazing. It, it, it was mind-boggling, and it, it, it blew me away. I was traveling from here to eventually Louisville, Kentucky, and I found myself on this bus-like vehicle with about a couple dozen other people, and this vehicle had about, you know, thousands of pounds of cargo on it. And we were driven by two very nice men on the front of this bus-like thing. And we had a very nice lady at the front of the bus-like thing making sure we were all safe and that we were secure and that everything was going well. 
we started moving. We started moving very slowly. We started taking some left-hand turns and some right-hand turns. Then all of a sudden we came to a stop. And just as quickly as we stopped, without any warning, we started taking off incredibly fast, like so fast. It was blowing my mind. I see the trees whizzing past me in my window right here. And I'm like, we're going, we're like out of control. We're going so fast that the front of this bus thing started lifting up. We started going even faster once that started happening. And I look at my window and lo and behold, the road below us is falling. It is, it's, it's going further away from us and we are going further up. Yes, I know what you're thinking. We were flying. We were flying. This is a modern day miracle. Thousands of years of human history and since the beginning of time, we've been dreaming of flying and I'm doing it. I'm flying. I look out my window and I see lakes becoming like little droplets of water. I see houses like little ants. I see mountains, not really mountains here in West Texas, but they're, they're kind of cap looking things look even smaller than they were before. And all of a sudden we get into the clouds. We're flying so high that I get into the clouds. Every time I fly, it, just, it, it should blow our minds, right? And we get into the clouds and, and you, you can't really see anything. And then all of a sudden that point hits where you bust through the clouds. And you can see the blue sky. You can see the clouds. You can see the tops of clouds. Mankind has been wondering what the tops of clouds are like. They don't look very different from the bottom of clouds, but they're the top of the clouds nonetheless. I got to see the tops of clouds. And as these extraordinary things were all happening around me, you know what I did? Lean my chair back. Lean my head back. Closed my eyes. Folded my hands. And took a nap. Why do I say this? Because we are so good at making the extraordinary things around us so mundane. We're so, we are extraordinary at making the extraordinary things around us so ordinary. And it's, it's so tempting for us to look at this passage, a very familiar passage that we have to go through. Indeed, we have to. We must be reminded of this passage and passages like it in the other Gospels every year. It's so easy for us to just glance past this, go past this, and say, go on to the next passage. But we can't. About this passage in particular, J.I. Packer says this. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the most profound, unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. God became man. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. I'm going to walk through 
We're going to see the storyline. We're going to walk through these verses. We're going to see the whole narrative of this passage. We'll get a big picture of what Matthew, why Matthew is writing this, what he's talking about. And then I'm going to really break it down into five points. Okay? Sound good? Verse 18 is where we're going to start. Matthew 1. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to turn to Matthew 1 and that, that, using that Bible in front of you. It's on page 757 if you need that. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew's mission is clear. These are the details of the birth of Jesus. The table is set after going through the genealogy of Jesus last week, if you recall. Went through all those names. And that was Jesus' genealogy. And now Matthew starts by telling us the extraordinary details of the birth of this man named Jesus. He says, now the birth of Jesus took place. That word birth is actually Genesis, the genesis of this man, Jesus. It's the same word that was used in verse one of this chapter when it was talking about the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus happened this way. Now the birth is happening this way. Continuing on in verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Right, row. Scandal has reached this small town of Nazareth. And we know it takes place in Nazareth, not necessarily from this passage, but from Luke's gospel. We know that this is now taking place in Nazareth and they will soon go to Bethlehem. Think about from the perspective of the people around Mary. People living in Nazareth. This everyday girl, this good girl, never did much wrong, was kind of the last kind of person you would expect to cheat on her betrothed. She now finds herself pregnant before marriage. You see, actually betrothal is a little different than it is nowadays. Betrothal back then was, a, was still a legal binding. So betrothal, the difference between betrothal and marriage was really, it was not yet consummated and the, the couple did not live together yet. So since it was a legal binding relationship, it was still considered a divorce. Joseph would have to write a certificate of divorce according to the law of Moses. It was a legally binding relationship and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't break it off. They couldn't just like, oh, we'll just let bygones be bygones, we're, we're good. They had to get a divorce. But Matthew tells us an extraordinary statement that this conception, in fact, came before her and Joseph came together. But even more than that, he says that this was actually from the Holy Spirit. This poses quite a problem for Joseph. Look at verse 19. Their husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Can you imagine what Joseph's thinking? Not only has his betrothed cheated on him, but now she's a lunatic. She's claiming that this baby is from the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph, he was a good guy. 
So after deliberating his options, he could have publicly humiliated, humiliated her and divorced her or quietly divorced her. He chose to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to drag Mary's character through the mud that even any more than it already has been. He doesn't want to make it super public. So he resolved to do it quietly. He's willing to let bygones be bygones. But then verse 20 happens. And verse 20 says, but. And that's the best kind of conjunction in the Bible as if you stick around Southside long enough and as you have, you've heard us say this. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, this is a change. That conjunction is a change that God is doing something. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. An angel, an angel of the Lord a messenger sent by God affirms to Joseph that Mary's story is legit. But the story gets even more extraordinary. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son. Angel still talking. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel keeps talking. He keeps going and he affirms more than just the fact that this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he, say, he takes it a step further. He tells them the reason why the baby came. And why is that? To save his people from their sins. More on that later. But as, as we move on, Matthew now takes a step back. He, he kind of takes a break. He, he, he zooms out. And he includes an Old Testament prophecy. In verse 22, he says... All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Here comes the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Evidently, this child's birth is fulfillment of promise. Again, more on that later, but look at Joseph's response in verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. He obeyed. All right, so now we've kind of walked through the narrative of the whole story. Let's ask the question, why did Matthew write all of this? What's the point of writing these words? What's the point? And it's for anyone who reads this to know legitimately beyond a shadow of a doubt that this baby was in fact God in the flesh. We're going we're to break it down. We're going to see five reasons why that is. There's five reasons why Matthew wants us to know that this, this truly is, this, this baby is God in the flesh. Let's consider his conception. Verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. 
This conception was divine. It was deity. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who was present during the Old Testament by empowering certain people to do amazing things, prophets to write scripture and to speak on behalf of the Lord, to speak the word of the Lord. And it was always under the direction of the Father. But in this case, this is why this case is different from what was happening in the Old Testament. This isn't just empowerment of a human being. It's not just a prophet that he's rising up. He's already rising up a prophet with John the Baptist. This is something different entirely. This is actually the formation of Jesus. Consider the Apostles' Creed, what we have believed as Christians for thousands of years. For he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's been said to help drive this point home, it's been said very clearly, Jesus had no earthly biological father, but he, of course, did have a biological mother who was a virgin even when the Spirit caused the fertilization of the ovum within her. Conceiving from the glory of heaven, the divine zygotes of the Son of God. This is not empowerment of a human. This is human and God in one. Let's also consider, let's look at the the presence of the Trinity in this passage. This drives home his divine conception by by showing the Trinity here. We've already seen the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was involved in in the conception to form the Son. So where's the Father? Where's the third person? Where's the the Father of the Trinity? Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What Yahweh, what God the Father had spoken by the prophet. This is a really interesting picture of the Trinity right here in the first chapter of Matthew. Side note, at this point, like this, the son was not the son, the person of the son, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit, the person of the son did not start here with Jesus. He was not created at this time. The birth of Jesus was not the creation of the person of the son. The son eternally existed with God, the father and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion. So what's happening here? If it's not the creation of the, the, the person of the Son, what's happening here is the fulfillment of the Son's mission. The fulfillment of the Son's mission is starting to happen here. To prove this, that the, that the Son has existed with the Father in the Trinity, in eternity past, is John 1, 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Son has eternally existed with the Father, but his incarnation began his earthly form in the fulfillment of his mission. So that's, his, that's what makes his divine conception. This is what makes his conception divine. It's our first point of realizing that this baby is God. Second, consider the angelic affirmation. The angelic affirmation. 
Verse 20, but as he considered these things, this is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Let's look at God's uses of angels. They were, whenever God used an angel, it was a sign of God's sovereign intervention, his gracious intervention with humanity. Think of Genesis 16 when an angel appeared to Abraham or to Moses in Exodus 3 or to Joshua in Joshua 5 or the apostle John in Revelation. It it wasn't always clear if these manifestations were Yahweh or a messenger, but what is clear is that whenever this happened, whenever an angel appeared, whether it was God or a messenger or an actual angel as we think of it, it was always clear that, this, that God was intervening. And that's what's happening here. God is intervening with this angel. And if that weren't enough, what makes this especially more amazing and extraordinary is that this was the first intervention of God with his people in over 400 years. This is the first intervention in over 400 years between the testaments, the intertestamental period. They were the silent years. No scripture or prophets had been raised up since Ezra and Nehemiah. Now 400 years is a really long time. But how long is it? 400 years ago from today, Leif Erikson, the Viking, yeah, he was, he was exploring and he, he discovered Greenland. So America hadn't happened, just Greenland. That's all they know. God had been silent for 400 years until in the small town of Nazareth, the first whisper of his activities was an angel affirming the holy conception. This is God in the flesh because the angelic affirmation. Thirdly, look at his mission. Look at this baby's mission. He has our third point, the salvific mission. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son. This is the angel talking. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Only God can save. Only God can save. Romans 5 is helpful here. Paul's talking about Adam, Adam's sin bringing death, but a new and better Adam bringing life. The sin of Adam brings death, but the death of Christ brings life. Jesus was the satisfactory sacrifice that we could never pay. Think about it this way. If you get 100 of the world's most righteous men, you put them together and you put all their good works together and you put them before God, that will still never be enough to be salvific. We are sinful and that's our problem. Only God can save. We cannot save ourselves. 
It's only through Jesus. 1 John 2, 2. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. God and God alone is the one who can save. Jared Wilson has a, has a, a great quote that really sums up this point and really drives it home. Only man should pay the price for their sins of mankind. Only man should pay the price for the sins of mankind, but only God could pay the price for the sins of mankind. Thus, in Jesus Christ, the man should and the God could unite in perfect payment and pure pardon. Jesus' mission is in his name. Consider this. The mission of this baby is in his name, Jesus. Now the Hebrew version uh, of this is, is Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. That's why the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus for what that for explains, that's, that's the reason why. Why are they naming him Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. It's in his name that Yahweh saves. This baby's sole mission is to save his people from their sins. You can even think back to last week. Consider this. Consider his genealogy. It might have a one or two kind of like heroes in it, but they're still sinners. And it's mostly, his genealogy is mostly made of riffraff, right? It's kind of embarrassing to look back on that family tree, but it's not. Because even if all these, even if these people were all amazing people, it's still not good enough. God still had to intervene. God still had to come through us, come to us. Jesus, this baby is God because of his divine conception, because of the angelic affirmation, and because of his salvific mission. And fourthly, because he is fulfilling prophecy. Look at verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. He quotes Isaiah from around 740 years earlier. Isaiah 7, he says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The birth of this baby is not random. The birth of this baby was predicted. The birth of this baby is in fact the culmination of God's redemptive history. So when we think about this, when we think about from Genesis Revelation as one story like any story, it builds up to a climax. And if that climax, if the very pinnacle of the story is Jesus' death on the cross, then his incarnation here, what we are seeing here, him becoming flesh, 
is the beginning of the climax. In short, Christmas exists for Easter. Christmas happens for Easter. So did Jesus, they called him, they, they called him Jesus and not Emmanuel, but did, did Jesus not fulfill this prophecy because his name wasn't Emmanuel? Well, no, it, it further exposes that this baby was indeed to be God with us. It's Yahweh saves and not just from afar, but with us. It further exposes, Emmanuel further exposes his, his mission, the fulfillment. It's the whole point of the gospel. It's the whole point of the Bible. It's the whole point of human history that God would save his people. Man can never work their way to God. God came to man with us to save us. It's not only fulfilled in Isaiah, but also Isaiah isn't just our one checkbox that we can say, oh yeah, he fulfills prophecy. No, this is the whole Bible talking about this. Even think back to Genesis. I'm so glad this, this series is coming on the heels of Genesis. Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first gospel message. This right here in Genesis 3, right after the problem happens, when sin happens, when broken relationship happens, he promises a savior. That the seed of the woman will come to crush the head of the serpent. He will not leave us on our own in the depths of sin and death. He comes and he crushes sin and death by dying on the cross, by coming to us, by saving us. The moment of conception was what all of human history had waited for. God with us. What was broken is now being restored. So really what's happening here is the initiating touch of the Father through the Spirit by sending his Son now came to fruition as the fruit of Mary's womb. I'm gonna say that again. The initiating touch of the Father through the Spirit by sending his Son now came to fruition as the fruit of Mary's womb. It's more than just Genesis though. We have to, what's in the text right here is, is fulfillment of the Davidic covenant so explicitly. Where am I getting that from? Well, think about how the angel addressed Joseph. How did he address him? He say, Joseph, the carpenter, Joseph of Nazareth. Hey, Jojo. Hey, Broseph. No. He says, Joseph, son of David. He points out Joseph's heritage that Matthew has already done that we saw last week in the beginning of in, in the genealogy. He shows that Joseph is ultimately a son of David. So why is the line of David important? 2 Samuel 7, 16 tells us very explicitly. This is God talking to David. He says, and your house 
And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's telling David that his line of rulers will last forever. When God says forever, it means forever. Because Jesus is the only king who can rule forever. He is the fulfillment of not just this promise and not just Genesis, but all the promises. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Adam to crush the head of the serpent. He's the promise to Abraham to make him a father of many nations. He is the fulfillment of promise to David to rule and reign forever and ever. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 is key here. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So to review what we've covered so far, the birth of Jesus is God in the flesh. How do we know this? Why? Because of his divine conception. Because of the angelic affirmation. Because of his salvific mission. and Because of his fulfillment of prophecy. Now fifth, this is an interesting point. Fifth is Joseph's response. Look at Joseph's response in verse 24. The angel appeared to him in a dream. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. There's really three responses here that Joseph did. First was he responded by marrying Mary. Even under all the scandal, even though they were the talk of the town, even though they were, they were, everyone was gossiping about them, he believed what the angel was saying. He acted in faith, not by fearing what the people thought, and he married her. He really heeded the angel's command of, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And second, he married her. But second, he, he delayed consummation. It's so interesting because there's a reason for it. He believed the angel so much that he did not consummate the marriage until Jesus was born. He wanted everyone to know that this baby was from God and not from him. So he delayed all that time of consummating the marriage because he was so convicted. He was so obedient to what God has, was saying through the angel. He wanted everyone to know. And Matthew affirms this. Matthew is very careful to never call Joseph the father of Jesus. He's very careful to never use that language that, that Joseph is Jesus' father. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 1. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus? No, he says, the husband of Mary, of whom, of, of whom Mary, born to Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
Third, look what Joseph does. He called his name Jesus. He named Jesus, not Mary. It says it right there in the text. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You can really see that as the final wrapping of arms around this son and taking him as his own. He adopted this son as his own. He recognized who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was. He knew that he was God in the flesh. And he knew his role, not as his biological father, but his father nonetheless. What a beautiful picture of adoption. Just like the flats or others who have brought children into their home as their own. As God adopts us as sons and daughters into his family, so Joseph took God's son as his own. The final stamp of obedience that this is truly God in the flesh. And I affirm it and I love it. I'm going to submit myself to it. Joseph's response truly is a reason to show that Jesus truly is God in the flesh. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? What do we do with the doctrine of the incarnation? That Jesus is 100% God. That he is 100% man. How do we respond to that? And by my estimation, there's two ways that we can respond to that this morning. First is ask yourself this question. Do you believe? Do you believe that God would show his love to us in this way by sending his son in the likeness of us, like humans, that God would show his love to us in this way, that if we believe in him, if we believe that this perfect son is the payment for our sins, that we will be saved. Do we view God as some far off deity who has no business really with humanity? Or do we see him for who he is, as a God who has intimately created us and intimately loves us and has intimately pursued us by sending his son. Do you believe, maybe you've been trying your entire life, trying to earn your way to God. Friend, this passage tells us that God has come to you and you cannot earn your way to him. And maybe you do believe this. Maybe you do understand these truths. Maybe you do love these truths and have submitted your life to these truths. But do you see these truths as amazing, as extraordinary? Like I was on the flight. Do you sit back and just take a nap at these truths? 
Or do you see these truths as wonderful? Do you see these truths? Do you see a baby in a manger as more than just a baby in a manger and, and something that we get to do skits about during Christmas? Do you see it as more than that? Do you see it as God in the flesh? Do you see Jesus as the climax of God's pursuit of mankind? B, I, I encourage you, brother and sister, be in awe of this. Be in awe that God would love us in this way, that Christ would die for us. Not as a far off deity, but as God with us, the incarnate deity. I'm going to close with the quote that I started with from J.I. Packer. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the most profound, unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. God became man. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. I pray that we would see it that way today. Let's pray together. Lord, God, thank you so much for sending your son. God, thank you so much for Christmas. Because without Christmas, we would have no Easter. God, thank you for sending your son to become a man, 100% God, 100% man. God, may we see his perfect sacrifice as the only sacrifice. Lord, if there's someone here who does not believe this, who does not understand this truth that you have pursued us, that you love us, God, would they repent and believe today? God, would they believe this to our core? And for us, God, I confess my own hardness and apathy, God. I confess that I am not in awe of this as I should be. God, I pray for those out there that are not in awe of these truths as we should be. God, may we repent of that and see you as more beautiful, as more glorious because of that's who you are. God, be with us today as we go throughout this time. Whenever we see a nativity scene or a manger, whenever we read your word, would we see God in the flesh and be reminded of these rich truths. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.